If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The untouchables, casualties of war, the bonfire of the vanities, raising Cain, Carlito's way, Mission Impossible. Brian De Palma didn't just make all those movies, he made all those movies in a row. Nobody balances suspense, action, and character better than he does. Each film is a master class in building tension, with tracking shots, disconcerting angles, and split screens. And then he releases that tension with the blunt shock of violence. In any De Palma film, the camera is ultimately the star. De Palma is the son of a surgeon, and he went to Columbia for physics. But he quickly discovered where his true passion lay. You know him as a virtuosic movie director, but before that, he was a fixture of the experimental Greenwich Village movie scene of the 1960s. That's where he cast a then-unknown actor named Bobby De Niro. Fitting, since De Palma later became known for working with all the greatest actors. His very first Hollywood movie starred Orson Welles. Last summer, the Hamptons International Film Festival gave Brian De Palma the Lifetime Achievement Award. I was honored to speak with him in front of a live audience when he came to accept it. Please welcome Brian De Palma. Um, Directing is an unbelievably difficult task. When did you know you could do that? This is a long, funny story. (laughs) I was uh, head of the Columbia Players. And... uh, the varsity show is a very big thing at Columbia. So there were two shows up to be voted for, and I was just an apprentice that was going to take over the Columbia players the following year. So in these situations, everybody's, uh, you know, got their own sort of corrupt intent because if you do my play, I get to play the lead and you get to direct and da 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 I knew nothing about this. 
there were two really good scripts, one by Steve Rawson, who was uh, one of my schoolmates at Columbia, and the other one by Terry McNally, a very funny comedy. And they fought for hours, and they were deadlocked, you know, like six to six, and it was getting late, and it was about midnight, and they said, they looked over to me, because I had read both scripts, and they said, well, we'll let, let the kid decide. So I said, well, I think that Terry McDally's script is funny. Let's do that one. Great. Everybody leaves. That night, I was shooting my first short, which consisted of pan coming out of the tunnel at 116th Street. I was not the director. I was just author and cinematographer. I get to the location, and my director arrives, Gene Marner. I'll never forget his name. And he comes with his very Sicilian girlfriend named Charlie. And she comes over to me and says, you fucking idiot. You didn't vote for the Rawson play? Didn't you know that Gene was going to direct it? And I go, huh? <laughs> and then they walked off. And they took the lead actor with them. So here I am at 116th Street at 3 in the morning, staring into an empty tunnel saying, I'm going to direct this now. And that's it. That's it. And you found some uh, waitress in an all-night diner and said, come with me, you're my lead. <laughs> you didn't need any actors for the shot? No, I had to go out and find my own actors and start all over again. Okay. Al. Cruz, Travolta, on and on and on. You work with stars, I mean, big stars at the apex of their career. Do, do you feel you were lucky that you got people who weren't only stars that could play the role and meet the demands you had of them? Well, I think I was very lucky with that. Like, for instance, in Blowout, which I wrote after uh, Dress to Kill, which Dress to Kill was a big hit, so now I was a genius and I could do anything. So I wrote this really small picture about the sound effects editor, and I was thinking it was really low budget, and it's not. And then Travolta called me up and said, I want you to read this script. And I read it, and I didn't, wasn't interested. And then he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing this film. It's, you know, it's about a sound effects editor, and let me read it. So he read it. And then he said, hey, I'd like to play that part. So now I have John Travolta one of the hottest stars there is at that point. And uh, suddenly the budget went from like six million to 16 million, and everything got bigger. Right. Are there principles of filmmaking that, that you hold fast to, regardless of the budget, regardless of the cast, or did the way you make films change the more money that was at stake? I don't think so. I mean, you know, making a you know a five million dollar movie or a you know a hundred million dollar movie, it's all more or less the same to me. There are obviously more people around, and uh, and since I like to do these elaborate you know set pieces, you need really those great technicians that were in Hollywood. It's you know the thing they always said about Orson Welles. He lost the ability to use all those great technicians, and it showed in his work, and I think that's quite true. Um, when did you start writing on what film? 
After Dress to Kill, I mean, I had this idea because uh, when I was mixing Dress to Kill, you know, there's, you know, there's like a scene right out of blowout in it. I talked to the sound editor and I noticed, you know, this wind effect and I said to him, this wind, I've heard this a thousand times. Can't you get anything new? And he looked at me, he says, okay. So he goes out, you know, into the country and, the, and, and gets his mic up and tries to get me some new wind sound. So that, so that started the idea of the sound effects editor who becomes the protagonist in the piece. He wanted the new wind for Dress to Kill, correct? Yes. Because yeah, I remember in the review of Dress to Kill, they mentioned that. They said, there's a new wind sound. <laughs> it achieves a new high in wind sound. Um, anyway, and, do, and when you write them and someone else writes them, which is harder to direct? Well, I think it's very important to do both because you have your own ideas and your own idiosyncrasies and uh, the set pieces I like to do. Uh, but I like working in other people's ballparks. And uh, that's why I'm attracted to really great writers. And when they, I read a great script, I go, oh, this is something I haven't never done before, like starting with, you know, the gangster pictures or an adaptation of a book, something like that. And it, it, it enlarges you because now you have to tell their story with the techniques you developed yourself. Um. You hit a run there where Burham, Steve Burham, becomes your DP. Correct. And what was the battery between you and him that that endured for so long? Your first with him was what? Uh, body double. When I was doing body double, I was shooting a lot of tests. And I had some of the most beautiful women in the world auditioning. And, uh, and then I was looking at these tests and I'm saying, God, these girls are gorgeous. Why do they not look so good on film? Then I said to myself, I think I'm going to start auditioning some cinematographers. <laughs> I mean, they spend a lot of time putting on makeup. <laughs> Why don't you light them correctly so you appreciate all the work that's been done? So Steve was the best of the auditioning cinematographers, and I went on and made many movies to him. And what I think is terrible now, with all these streaming movies where they all shoot digitally, and it's all with this bounce light, and everybody looks like, excuse the expression, shit. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very dispiriting. I did this TV series, 30 Rock, and Tina Fey was, was compelled by the NBC people to cut costs. And they would say to Tina every year, let's do camera tests with digital. Uh, and she rejected it, and she fought, and she won. And we shot on film for six and a half years, which I think you, they won't even allow you. You don't even have that discussion. Everything is digital. What I don't like is because they can make the movie faster, the velocity of it now doesn't allow you to think as much as you used to. You know, now you've basically got an editor's cut of the movie by the time you're just done shooting. Right. And it used to be a year later in the old days, do you miss having more time to luxuriate and thinking about what the movie would be? Well, when you work with the same editors, movie after movie, they more or less know what you want. So when you get to the end of your shoot, they have a pretty good assemblage of what you've done. 
and plus all the elaborate set pieces have all been storyboarded, and they, you know, and they work with me so long, they know exactly where everything goes. So it's not much of a problem for me. Burham didn't do Scarface. John Alonzo did. You're right. How did that happen? Well, he spoke Spanish. <laughs> and I'd work with John on Get to Know Your Rabbit, my lost Warner masterpiece. <laughs> Literally, you hired Alonzo because he spoke Spanish? <laughs> no, he's also a, you know, right. he's also he's a legendary China cinematographer. Yeah. He's really a good cinematographer. Right. Yeah, he's great. But, but, but Bert, was it like Burham wasn't available, or you wanted to try something different? Or you thought John was better for this material? I don't know. I mean, there are many really good cinematographers, and sometimes the one you want that you work with all the time is not available. Right. And, it, you know, I use Vilmos a lot. I use John. Um, that's the great technicians are working all the time. Where did you find Lithka? How did you come across him? Well, when I was at Columbia, I was casting my first feature, and I was looking for a replacement for the lead, who I didn't think was going to be great. And I went to Princeton, and uh, Lithgow was in a uh, a Moliere play with uh, another actor friend of mine, William Finley. And I saw this guy, he was, you know, just, a, I think, a senior at Harvard at that point. And I said, wow, this guy's fantastic. And I recommended him to another director, Paul Williams, who put him in his first film, uh, based on a book by Michael Crichton. And then when I did Blowout, that was the first time we worked together. The thing about Lithgow, especially in this movie, that he reminds you of is he, he has um, such amazing vocal control that you most often find in the theater. He is a great stage actor, and he's incredibly intelligent. He's very funny. He's great to work with. And uh, whenever I had a part for him, I immediately cast him. And in uh, Raising Cain, I had him playing like five different personalities, including a very deadly woman. You made a couple films with Al, and... uh... Did you just sit there sometimes behind the monitor and sit there and go, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do with this scene? You know what I mean? Like, he's so operatic and vivid. That never occurred to me. No. Just let Al be Al? Well, I thought, the, I thought the, it was important to introduce him. I mean, Al has a great face. So I was going to introduce, and he's Scarface. So I was going to introduce him with this close-up, you know, talking to these people, interrogating him. Because uh, Al can hold the screen, you know, with this incredible face and that voice, and you just sit there riveted. Uh, but I, I, they all talk about how operatic it was. Didn't seem operatic to me. You have, obviously have a very high threshold for the operatic. <laughs> As I told him, I said, my favorite story about Scarface, because I mean, Scarface is obviously one of the most amazing movies ever made. It's just so insane and what goes on there, you know? You know every line. I mean, how many times have you, you know... Say hello to my little friend. Say hello to my little friend, you know? You're going through the toll, you know what I mean? Or so, someone's asking for your ID when you show your credit card. You're like, say hello to my little friend. Say hello over and over again. I mean, everybody knew, but my favorite, as I told you, was apparently years ago I read where they busted these drug dealers in, in East L.A. And they, and they swooped in the LAPD on a big drug dealing nest, a house. 
in some tough area of LA, of East LA, and they went in, and the drug dealers there who had like mountains of drugs there and everything, and weapons and money, they also had Scarface on, on a loop, and it played all day. <laughs> and they just watched Scarface all day. I think that's amazing, you know what I mean? Like only in, only in a home with children do you loop the same thing. Like you show Home Alone all day, where you show Powerpuff Girls all day, and drug dealers show Scarface all day, like kids. When you do say hello to my little friend, when you're behind the monitor going, oh yeah, baby, this is it. It's a great scene. Well, the reason there's so many people being shot and falling down steps and 80,000 killers running up the steps is, when we first went on to the set to start that sequence, first it burned down, the whole set burned down. Somebody set it on fire. That was, that was number one. Number two, when Al was using that gun uh, to shoot people, he grabbed the gun by the, the barrel. barrel and he burned himself severely yeah. because it's, you know, white hot. So Al went to the hospital, I think, for two weeks. So, so the set burned, Al burned. Yeah, exactly. And then what? So here I had a set, no Al, but I had a lot of uh, Colombians to kill. Yeah. You spent a couple of weeks yeah, killing Colombian drug dealers. A <laughs> couple of weeks killing Colombians. And you're on the phone, you're like, how you doing, Al? <laughs> you're still in a lot of pain, huh? They're giving you a lot of painkillers? Okay, babe. All right, line them up. We're going to kill the rest of these guys. Get them in there. Exactly. One star Brian De Palma has directed is Viggo Mortensen who turned in an exquisite performance as the wheelchair-bound informant Laline in Carlito's Way. But Mortensen didn't always get such juicy roles. As a child, he was an introvert who couldn't imagine going on stage. Um, well, actually, I did have one experience. I think it was junior high. Uh, a friend of mine was really into the idea of becoming an actor, and he loved musicals, and he knew everything about the theater in New York. And he said, you got to try it for this play. It's great. It's called, I think it was Hello, Dolly. And he goes, you got to try out for this. And I said, what? No, I can't. Can you imagine me trying out for Hello, Dolly? I went very unwillingly out on the stage, and I read the first paragraph from David Copperfield, or tried to. And I finally just closed the book and ran off. And that was my only foray, other than I think when I was like six, they put me in a play as George and the Dragon. And that was the ass end of the dragon. It was just a gray suit. <laughs> Sounds like my career. That's our... <laughs> my full conversation with Vigo Mortensen is in our archives at heresthething.org. Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you 
every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School Podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Throughout his career, Brian De Palma's films have been widely celebrated, but the violence in them has also brought him fierce criticism, including from members of the MPAA Ratings Board. An X rating could kill a film at the box office. Well, it all started with uh, Dress to Kill, the masturbation scene in the shower. And uh, Hefner, I used to battle. You know, you send the film over and you take out one of the shots of the breast and, you you know, is that enough? No, 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 you got to take out that other shot. They don't say it exactly, but they say, maybe you should work on it a little more. Okay, well, this, this went on from movie to movie until we got to Scarface. I finished Scarface, and I sent it to the ratings board. They give me an X. And, and I said, okay, well, maybe we'll cut a little here. Cut. And I sent it back again, version number two. They gave me another X. And then I said, okay, I'll try it again. And then I sent it, well, cut a little more out of some of the violent scenes. And uh, they gave me an X, and I said, what? And they said, well, the clown. When the clown gets shot, that's too much. (laughs) I say, I am not cutting anything else. And then you have to go to the whole board and plead your case. So they said, well, what version do you want to use? I said, I'm going to use the original version. (laughs) And the head of the studio said, no, 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 you have to use that third. I said, no. They're all X. I'm taking the first version that I didn't cut anything out of. And then we went before the board, and I vanquished Hefner. We won by, they voted, and and they let us. Who was Hefner? 
He was the head of the ratings board. Who was? Richard Hefner. Oh, Richard Hefner, okay, yeah. I thought, what? I thought you were going into like a room and the guy's in his pajamas, he got a pipe, and he's like, I'm sorry, Brian. I'm sorry, Brian. Shooting the clown is too much. You can have all the boobs you want, but shooting the clown is too much. Um, we kept on but when you shooting. do a scene that you know is violent or not, uh, uh, just powerful, you know, I mean, I mean, when you see the music plays and Cruz goes, na 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 na, and he lands like that, I mean, in mission, nobody, there's guys that are up there with you, there's always the famous photograph of you and your alums, you and Lucas and uh, Marty and Stephen, your uh, graduating class. Uh, now that I think about that, I think the difference, and needless to say, Marty and Stephen are very skilled uh, at these kind of sequences. I think the difference is that Stephen has always used the same composer, John Williams, great composer, but it's always the same composer. And uh, Marty uses uh, rock and roll, basically. Uh, I've used some of the best film composers that were writing music in my era, and it makes a difference. I mean, the, the Morricone score for casualties will tear your heart out. Uh, and then the, the score for Carlito's Way, you know, when Al's dying, it's just, you know... It's opera time, you know, it's Puccini time. You just tears your heart out. And that, I think, is the difference, is I used a, a variety of the great composers that were working, and that may be why my sequences stick out so much. Well, let's go to Mission for a minute. What made you decide you wanted to make that as a film? I had made Carlito's Way, which I... I, when I saw this picture in Berlin at the festival, I, I, I was literally behind the screen watching it, and I said to myself, I can't make a better picture than this. And it wasn't a big success. And, and it just killed me. And I said, I'm going to go out and make a big success. Then I, my agent of many years sort of went crazy, and Mike Ovitz wanted to represent me, and he had a problem. He had Sidney Pollack, who had been working on Mission Impossible, with uh, two writers, and, uh, and Sidney wanted to get off of it. He'd been working on it for a year, and it wasn't working out. So Sidney wanted to make Sabrina. And suddenly, Ovitz had De Palma, and he came to me and he said, would you be interested in Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise? And I said, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible? You bet. You cynical bastard. <laughs> And I made the biggest hit of my career. That was the biggest one. Yeah. Did you guys like Mission Impossible number one? I love that movie. And, and, I, love, and I love the other ones, and I'm glad. I was so excited to go work with them. But when I first saw that first one, it's like when I saw Jurassic. You know, there's movies that were like seminal movies to me in terms of putting the piece together. Not just the helicopter scene, but all that stuff, all that shooting, that scene in the beginning where Kristen uh, Scott Thomas dies. Whoa. Yeah. That was our first problem. Tell me. Mission Impossible, the television series, is about five characters with no personality that go and do things. <laughs> Tom Wicks wants to make a movie about him. So wh what do I do with the other five characters? So my first idea is we kill them all in the first mission. 
worked out rather well. If, if ever you send me a script and I'm the fourth lead in the movie, I'm gonna pass. I'm not gonna come do the movie with you. I'm either the lead or I'm not doing it. And so Kep wrote, uh, David Kep, the great David Kep, who's written uh, countless great movies that I can't even mention. Does he write it with you, or does he just go write it and hand it to you? Well, that's a, that's a sad story. Uh, it started with, see, once Sidney left, and I, had to st- st- I, was, I was dealing with two screenwriters that I knew Tom didn't like what they were doing, and uh, ultimately we had to find another screenwriter and uh, Zalian, the famous Stephen Zalian, great screenwriter, Paramount owed him some money. So they said, well, why don't you two get together and come up with something? So Zalian and I sat in his office in Santa Monica and ate a lot of peanuts and smoked a lot of cigarettes, as I remember. And it took us about six weeks to come up with the 10-page treatment, which was the plot of... Mission Impossible. And then Zalian said, I'm out of here, I've had it. So then I ran into David, who was about to work on some remake of something. I said, Dave, come over and we'll do Mission Impossible. So Dave and I, working from the Zalian and my story, came up with the script for Mission Impossible. And I was having a hard time getting Tom to commit to it. I mean, come on, Tom. I mean, we're building sets. Got to commit to this movie now. Tom was still, there were things in the script that bothered him, but I finally got him to say, okay. So then I get a call from the producer the next day, and she says, the good news is you're a go. The bad news is fire David Kep because Tom wants to bring on another writer. And uh, that was a very sad moment for me to call up Dave and say, well, Dave, we're making the movie, except we're bringing on a new writer. Uh, And then what ultimately happened was the new writer did not really turn out well. And I brought David back in, uh, and uh, he rewrote the script once again, and that became Mission Impossible. Who's the actor who you had the best communication with? Somebody who just that bad. Well, well, you talk about how much you, what a great actor Al is, but he's also, he moves so gracefully. And when I did that very complicated Steadicam shot in uh, Carlito's way, I mean, you have to, you know, you're timing the Steadicam operator with the way Al moves and, you know, you're, you know, he's coming up the steps, he goes over to the edge uh, and looks down in uh, Scram Central Station, comes back, close-ups, you watch the guys coming across. An incredibly complicated shot. And Al just, you know... But there was a really funny story about that, is when we were trying to get the shot from subway train to subway train when the guys are chasing him through the subway. And I wanted to get a shot from one subway to the subway that he's in. So the guys have to chase Al through the subway and we're going parallel to them. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of obstruction of, you know, pillars going by and are they in the shot? Are they blocked by the windows? So we spent all night trying to get this shot. And we shot Carlito's way. We started in the winter and we ended in the summer. And Al was in that black leather coat. 
So after about, <laughs> I can't tell you how many takes, suddenly I see the train going away. And I talk to my assistant director, I say, what happened? Where's the train going? <laughs> and he said, Al's taking it home. I did this movie, Miami Blues, and it oh, was finger, interesting. The finger chop. The finger, exactly. And Not we did, good. Pardon me? Not good. You didn't like that? Well, chopping fingers. Well, I didn't. I've done that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. How dare you look down on me? You're saying my films are too violent? Jesus Christ. No, but I don't want to just use the word violence, but the drama. Because the violence all has a purpose. The violence is all for storytelling. I've seen violent films. Obviously, we all have their... There's not really much of a story behind it. And you've got great writing, great characters, and a necessary component of violence. But who's, who's a performance you watched where you just thought, my God, this is just wrenching how beautiful this is? Well, I mean, that dying scene in Carlito's Way is uh, just unbelievable. I mean... And the way I did it was uh, I had them, you know, on the ground and, you know, Penelope is leaning over him, Al's on his back, he's been shot. And I knew I was going to have to loop it all later anyway. So I played this incredibly romantic Puccini music. So, uh, yeah, on set, probably La Boheme. Right. And the music just got them going. I mean, and Penelope, I mean, she's... Tears are coming out of her eyes. And it, and it worked quite well, which is used, what they used to do in the silent days when you had an orchestra on the set and they would play music so the actors could emote with the I remember, music. I remember Brando would have books with photographs, not just music, but he had images that would kind of arrest him in a certain way. Photography and, and paintings and things. I want to talk to you about two other things before we finish. One is about Untouchables, when you shoot a film like that, there was a suggestion I was once going to work with Eastwood on a film years ago. And they came to me and they said, but you can't get clever with him about the schedule. You don't give him any scheduling edicts. You're his. You belong to him. Don't get date crazy. When you did, you got Costner and you got De Niro and you got Sean Connery. When you do a movie like that, do you get them run of show or did you have to kind of oh, do the most? No, right. no, are you kidding? Okay. Right, okay. Right. No way. No way. No, I mean, I think we, we had uh, Bobby for two weeks. While I was shooting the, the, the shootout in the train station, Bobby was getting in his makeup and learning his lines, and after that sequence, we shot all the scenes with Did he Bobby. gain all that weight for the movie, or some of that prosthetic? No, he, he, he gained a little weight, but he, he was wearing... Some, some padding. Some padding to right. give him some bulk. Right. And facially? But, but he did, you know, shave back his head. And, yeah. It's almost impossible to see the range of how he manipulates himself. But what's interesting about De Niro, you know, and I started with De Niro. He was in my first three underground movies. I met him in a loft in Greenwich Village when he was, you know, 19. Uh, when we got to do um, The Untouchables... I kept on, you know, looking at the stuff he was doing, and I was sort of, he didn't seem to be doing much. And, I, you know, it's the thing when you say, well, when Balbi, when you want to do a little more with this scene, he said, you'll see it in rushes. I said, I'll see it in rushes? 
don't worry. And sure enough, because when you're watching through the camera or even next to the camera, you, you know, it's like I'm looking at this guy in the first row. Well, that's, that's what, how, how much I can see. But when you see it on a huge screen, he's doing stuff that's so subtle mm -hmm. that you really can't see while you're shooting it. Um, what's entertainment for you now? You go to the movies much or you stay home, you watch some Netflix or... You, could use, you, you still go to the movies, see some new movies? Yep. You do? You still like yep. movies, watching? Yes, I still go to the movies. I, I like the Quentin Tarantino movie. You do? You did yeah. like that? And then the Noel Baumbach movie, Marriage Story. Right. We got some really good directors working. Fantastic. Um, well, uh, in honor of someone who is one of the greatest directors in the history of the American cinema, would you please welcome his daughter, Piper De Palma. Come on out here, Piper. Tell him what you have, Piper. I have this beautiful Glass Lifetime Achievement Award. This is our Lifetime Achievement Honoree for 2019. The legendary Brian De Palma. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.